We're in Hebrews chapter 12. And this chapter has been a chapter that has been about the faith that we need for endurance through difficulties and through trials. Uh, And as we have seen that what the writer of Hebrews has done is he has not held anything back in describing the difficulty of what it takes to be able to endure through difficulties. He opened in chapter 12 telling us that we need to lay aside the burdens and the weights and the sin that clings so closely to us. To run with endurance the race that is set before us. To have our eyes fixed on Jesus and focusing on Him as we make this run. And we looked at this picture of discipline that what trials are doing are of a corrective nature. We need to be turned the right way. We need the instruction and the correction and the teaching that comes through our suffering and through our trials. But unfortunately... We have the tendency with our trials to allow that to become an excuse for sin. And that's where the writer of Hebrews is at at this point in chapter 12. Is reminding them that they cannot sin, but rather need endurance and to not give up in faith as they travel in this spiritual journey with God. In particular, he's told them to lift up these drooping hands and these weak knees, strive for peace. In the end of verse 14, very important, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You need to be holy. As you go through the trial, you need to be holy as you go through your suffering. Otherwise, you're not going to see God. And now that's going to be amplified here in these next few verses. Notice in verse 15, he says of Hebrews 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Notice this warning again. I don't want you to fall short. It's been the big picture throughout this book. Back in chapter 2, warning them about not neglecting the salvation that they've received. Here is this warning again. I don't want you to fail to obtain the grace of God. I want you to experience this and enjoy this. And if I were to ask you now, what big sin do you think he's going to warn them next about? Better say, okay, now don't fail to obtain the grace of God. So make sure you avoid this sin. What sin would you probably put in there? And I submit to you, you probably wouldn't have put in there bitterness. But that's what he says. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble And by it, many are defiled. He says, you're in the middle of trials and I want to warn you of something. Make sure you do not become bitter. And notice how bitterness is pictured like this poisonous root that is in the heart that suddenly springs up. It's just laying there dormant and you think it's okay and you don't have bitterness and it's fine. And then all of a sudden it just springs up. And notice the description that he gives to this root of bitterness. It springs up, causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. And I submit to you, we often don't recognize the spiritual destructiveness of bitterness. It's easy to think, oh, bitterness is okay as long as I don't act on it. (laughs) You know, I'm not doing anything bad to people. I'm just bitter inside. I'm just upset. Just just not happy about what's happened. 
And we can express that bitterness in terms of what other people have done to us. We can have bitterness for what other people are not doing for us while we're in our trial. And we can definitely have bitterness toward God because of what we're going through. And he gives here a warning. You better watch out about the root of bitterness in the heart. You better be careful that there is not springing up within you this root of bitterness that you would have toward others or toward God. To really consider what that would look like, that it might be possible that that is happening. In fact, it is interesting to me in verse 15 that this is pretty much a quote from Deuteronomy 29. Where here Moses is warning the people about a stubborn heart that would rise up like this root and spring up and cause trouble and cause them to be defiled. And the concern that he had was that there would be the Israelites and they would think that it's okay in their heart to remain stubborn before God and that God wouldn't do anything about it, that they would bless themselves in their heart and say, I am safe before God and I'm going to be fine. And it's interesting that he uses the same rude analogy from there and applies it here because it is easy for us to do that with bitterness. Oh, it's okay. Nobody knows. Nobody, nobody can see bitterness. That's that there's no window into our lives to show that. So God doesn't see people don't know. And if somebody calls us out on it, I'm just having a bad day. You know, I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Things are tough. And what ultimately what it really is, is we are embittered against people or against God. And we are going through the trial. And as we talked about last week, rather than the trial moving us to holiness and moving us to humility and moving us to the character that God wants us to be, it's moving us to anger and it's moving us to bitterness and it's moving us to malice. And he's warning of that right here. He knows what it means to go through a trial. And he's aware of the human condition. That what we can do in a bitter, when we go through trials is become bitter. We harbor these kinds of feelings toward people who are harming us, who have ruined us, who have wrecked our lives, who have made our lives more difficult than we think it ought to be. Which then I think as I was putting this lesson together, became the most challenging part of what this says. Is if he says this, this means bitterness is a choice. It is absolutely a choice that we make. That we are choosing to remain bitter toward a person for what they've done. And the reason why I think that's hard is because what I think we want to do is we want to believe that, no, I'm not bitter. I'm just upset or I'm frustrated or I have righteous indignation. I have a feeling of justice. What they did was wrong. And so therefore I am acceptable to feel this way and act upon that and hold on to that and allow that to be a root in my life. And... If you may in your life say, well, you don't know what I've gone through. You're right. I don't know what you've gone through, but I'll tell you what I've gone through so that you can just relate to that. 
When it comes to bitterness, I think for my life, I think about with the unfaithfulness that my mom committed. And I had all kinds of bitterness toward the person she cheated with and unfairly not so much on my mom like I should have probably and more on him. But I would tell myself, well, that's okay. What they did was wrong. And so I can harbor that bitterness. And did I ever act on it? No, no, I didn't act on it. But they ruined my life. They blew everything up. It changed the course of all events. Everything was thrown upside down. Childhood destroyed, family destroyed, divorce happens, everything blows up. And nobody made that any easier. Nobody's apologizing to me. So I can be better, right? You see, we walk through those kinds of things in our life where we go, well, they didn't apologize and they didn't repent and they weren't very nice and what they did was wrong. And so because they are wrong, I can be bitter. And notice there's no, you know, what I want verse 15 to say is unless those people sin against you, then it's okay. You just be as bitter as you want to be against them. You just go after them with all, you just hold on to that bitterness. You go ahead and you just hold on to that. But notice what he's saying is it's destroying you. Causes trouble and defiles you. You're wrecking yourself before God when you hold on to that bitterness. This is something that is important for us to really examine that people can do all kinds of things to us. And we are not allowed in any way to harbor ill will or resentment or bitterness or any such kind of thing in our heart toward those people, even if they are the most vilest of people. You know, one of the things that helps that is you don't see Jesus embittered against us for all of our screw ups and sins for how often we do stuff against him. This is what the scriptures are trying to drive at is yes, they did something wrong. Yes, God will hold them accountable. Yes, it is a sin. But that doesn't mean I have a right now within my heart to now harbor that ill will and go, I don't want anything to do with you and I hope you just rot. And we would never say it. But oh, we feel it. Uh, We want to see them suffer. We want to see them in misery. Our joy comes out of their misery and discipline. That's what bitterness does. I believe this is the idea of here causing trouble and defiling many. Bitterness just never stays as bitterness. It always moves into something else. It always moves into malice. It always moves into anger. It moves into these areas else in our lives that are absolutely sinful as well. It defiles. It makes things worse. And if nothing else, if nothing else, it stunts our spiritual progress because rather than being focused on Jesus, as he told us in chapter 12 and those first few verses, what are we focused on? What somebody did to me. We're not focused on where we're going. We're not focused on the Lord. We're focused on what they've done. And what our defense usually is, if somebody were to challenge us, we would respond with, 
Well, you don't know what they've done. Yeah, you're right. I don't know what they've done. They could have done all kinds of terrible things. And there's this root of bitterness that sits in the heart. And it darkens the heart and it spreads and it defiles and it grows. And he's just warning it of all the things that you would say, I I want you to not to fail to obtain the grace of God. And he cuts right into the core and says, now, are you bitter in your trials? Do you have bitterness in there about what's going on? You bitter toward God? You bitter toward what people have done, how they've responded, how they've treated you? Watch out. Be careful. And he'll explain why in just a moment. But he'll bring in another one now, verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Number one, in trials, so easy to become bitter. Number two, in trials, become immoral. Just, you know what, never mind, I'm in trial, so I'm just going to sin. going to live my life how I want to. I need to be happy, I'm going to fulfill my desires, I'm going to feel better. And so I'm going to feel better now. Whatever that takes to feel better now, I'm going to do that. And he's warning of that too. When you are suffering, when you are in trials, do not become unholy. Do not become immoral. Do not engage in sexual immorality. Don't go that road. And notice what he does to try to express that as he gives the example of Esau. Do not become unholy or sexually immoral like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, we have to understand this picture a little bit to be able to grasp what the writer of Hebrews is doing for this analogy. The the birthright was something that was very valuable in ancient Near Eastern times. You were receiving a double portion of the future family inheritance. In regards to Esau's part, he has a brother named Jacob. And so with there being two boys, the inheritance was going to be divided up into thirds. And Esau was going to get two of the thirds and Jacob was only going to get one of the thirds. So you can argue about how that's not fair, but that's not how the world worked back then. Back then it was... Firstborn son, double portion of future inheritance. One day Esau has been in the field, according to Genesis 25. He's out there hunting. He's working hard. He comes back in. Jacob is making a meal of stew. And Esau says, I'm going to die. I'm so exhausted. I need something to eat now. Jacob, give me some of that stew. And Jacob, being the conniver that he is, says, all right, I will give you this pot of stew if you will sell me your birthright. And Esau goes, done and done. Sure, I'll give you all of my future blessings of the and, and rights and possessions of this inheritance. I'll give you all of that because I am so hungry I'm going to die. And so Esau gets bread and stew and gives Jacob this double future inheritance. I want you to think about that idea. He traded the family inheritance, the double portion that would be land, money, animals, possessions. He was going to get twice as much as Jacob. And now he's going to give it all to Jacob, basically. He's pushing it in. Uh, Why? For one meal. And I want you to consider the evaluation. 
It wasn't equal in value. Stew for land and property and possessions and wealth. Not equal in value. And think about it's how not it's not equal in duration. He ate the bread and ate the stew and it was gone. That's why I have a hard time with expensive meals. Like, well, there that went. <laughs> Four hours later, I will be hungry again. <laughs> wasn't equal in value, wasn't equal in duration. These possessions and inheritance, he was going to be able to hand down to his firstborn and to his kids and to his kids, all of that. And what you see in the picture of Esau is that he being controlled by these present desires rejects the future guaranteed inheritance. He looked at what was right now, the way he felt now, what he was experiencing right now, and said, I don't care about what was in the future. I don't care about what is to be gained. I don't care how valuable that may be. I don't care how permanent those possessions may be. I need this temporary bread and stew right now. And anytime you ever read that, you, and even now you've got to be thinking, what a dumb trade, right? How do you trade all of the future inheritance that is to be given to you for stew? I mean, as I try to teach Casey, soup's not a meal. I mean, come on. It's not even, you know, bring in the fatted calf or something here. We're on a stew, stew and bread. What a foolish exchange. And I want us to notice the picture that he's giving us here is as foolish as that is. That is ultimately what sin is. Ultimately, the evaluation of sin is this. I want something now and I'm willing to trade future inheritance for it. I want pleasure now. I want my cup of stew now. I want what's going to make me feel better now. And so, hey, what good is the future if I perish now is what basically Esau says. What what good is it if if I fall down right now? So I might as well just enjoy something now. That is the essence of why sin is so heinous is because what we are doing is not just simply doing what we want. But making this unbelievable exchange, saying that what we are going to do right now, and to use our context, stay bitter, be sexually immoral, or be unholy, is worth trading away all future inheritance. Just worth it. Because I need something now. It's just worth it. And here is the writer of Hebrews saying, don't be like Esau. Don't make that exchange. That is a foolish exchange. That exchange doesn't make sense in terms of value nor in terms of duration. I've stood on my head about the duration part. You commit sin, you feel better for a moment, and then what? You're right back where you were. It doesn't get any better tomorrow. Now you're back in the same spot. And you've traded future glory for a moment. Never mind the value isn't even come close to comparing. 
But listen to verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, it's important to carefully read this, and I highlighted the part to be careful. Notice it doesn't say that you know afterward when he desired to get the birthright. That's not what happened. He traded the birthright away. But remember, now he's going to lose the blessing. Isaac is old in age, cannot see, and accidentally, though certainly God's sovereignty, blesses Jacob rather than Esau. And the scene in Genesis makes you think Isaac made a mistake. This is a big whoops. The writer of Hebrews comes in and says God rejected Esau from the blessing because he traded the birthright away. He didn't see the future value of that inheritance. And so therefore he lost the blessing. He was rejected from receiving it. This is the big picture. Because he didn't see the great value of what he was about to receive. God said, I'm not going to bless you. You're not going to enjoy God's blessing. When we do not hold that value of this future inheritance in the highest regard, there is a rejection that we are exhibiting to God. We are telling God, your future inheritance that you have promised to us is just not enough. This cup of stew, this stew is the balm, and it is way better than anything you could possibly give me in the future. That's what we're telling God. And the point then that's being made is the blessing can't be received because you don't value the inheritance. What's his warning? His warning is that we must not sell our hope for temporary joy or a temporary experience in this world. We must not make that exchange. And notice that it says in verse 17, And Esau found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's a jarring declaration right there. That should be unnerving. He trades the birthright away. And even though he earnestly desires the blessing and seeks it with tears, he could not have it. And I think it is important to notice that is something the writer of Hebrews has hammered a few times. He has talked a few times about the inability to repent on this book. This is now the third time he's going to say that. When you exchange the future inheritance and future glory, what all that God is offering for the present, there's no future hope. Jarring. And we might want to argue with it. And thankfully, the writer of Hebrews spends all of verses 18 through 29 to argue back against all of our argument of why that can't be right. Because you go, wait a minute, he wanted it. And God says, it doesn't matter because you aren't valuing the future inheritance. If you don't see the prize at the end, if you don't see what God has to offer and that future inheritance as worth far more than anything you can receive in this life, 
you are being rejected from the blessing of God. There's no way you're going to obtain it. You can't have it. Well, let's look at the proof. I always love when the first word of the next sentence is four. You go, all right, explain it to me. Show me. Show me this truth. Make, make this come to life. Really, give, explain why this can't be. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He begins by using the illustration of Sinai. He says, let me prove how you are not going to be able to receive the future inheritance, how it is completely impossible if we make that exchange. And he starts by rehearsing what happened at Sinai back in Exodus 19 and 20. And he says, remember what it was like when they came to Mount Sinai. That mountain was shaking, quaking, amazing in all that it was doing. It was terrifying to the people. The people had told Moses, don't let God talk to us like that again. So terrifying was the sight. In fact, we are given information that Exodus doesn't have in verse 21 when Moses said, I tremble with fear. He looks like Superman in Exodus 20, but even he was afraid when God came down on that mountain. It was a terrifying sight, but there was a purpose to it. In verse 20 of chapter 20 of Exodus, Moses turns to the people and says, this is, I I love the irony of it. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. God did this for a reason. This terrifying scene of God coming down on Sinai was intended not for sheer terror. Don't be like, ah, we're afraid of God. That's not the point. But that you won't sin because of the extreme majesty, glory, and holiness of God. You will see the power of God and you will live a holy life. That was God's intent. And that's what Moses tells the people. But now interesting, verse 18 said, you didn't come to that mountain. That's not where you're standing in front of right now. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His point, you have come to something even more amazing. As amazing as Sinai was in all of its glory and splendor of God, you have come to something even more fantastic. You have come to Zion and listen to those pictures, the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels and festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Verse 24, you've come to Jesus, the mediator, 
of a new covenant and to sprinkled blood that speaks of speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to something even more glorious, something more special, something more amazing, something more fantastic. So now what's the point? Is the point glad we didn't come to Mount Sinai? Sure good to be at Mount Zion where things are you know, warm and fuzzy and comfortable. No. Read verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So he says, now remember Sinai. The people were terrified. And the point was to cause the people to fear God and to live holy lives and not sin. And he says, you haven't even come to that mountain. You've come to a different mountain. You've come to Zion. And there are way more riches and way more blessings in Mount Zion, as was described. You've come to Jesus, you've come to God, you've come to the angels, you've come to heavenly Jerusalem, you've come to all these things. And then he just simply says, so how much worse if we reject? How much worse? Verse 25, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. How many escaped when we saw that in Exodus through Deuteronomy? Joshua and Caleb. The rest did not escape. They saw that scene and all died in the wilderness. They didn't escape. Verse 25 much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven? Going to go better for us? You've come to so much more. You've enjoyed so much more. You have so much more of the privileges. You are not going to escape this judgment that is going to come. The picture is it is going to be far worse for us if we choose in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, to make the exchange. And say, temporary joy is worth exchanging future inheritance to come. Three applications really fast. Number one. We're doomed if we devalue the future inheritance. We're doomed. Why would Esau trade all of that future inheritance for some bread and stew? There's only really one way. You don't care about the future inheritance. It means nothing to you. That's the only way you make that trade. 
It's meaningless. It wasn't of any importance to him. He didn't care. He wasn't willing to wait. And he didn't see the value of waiting. And so stew, far more valuable to him than all that came of future guaranteed inheritance that Esau was going to bestow upon him. We cannot trade our future permanent inheritance for the temporary moment of pleasure. We just can't. We just simply cannot do that. And when we do that, what we are ultimately doing is that we are devaluing the future inheritance. We are looking at eternity and we are saying that is not valuable. Sin is more valuable now. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And it's a terrible exchange. Just like Esau's terrible exchange. We live in a society right now that tells us we're all going to be in eternity as long as we're just not really bad. You know, we're just kind of decently okay, good people. But the text is challenging us to have a faith that is filled with the fear of God. To recognize the reality of what lies ahead. And that is the picture that's given to us in verses 28 and 29. Since this is the case, number one, let us be thankful for receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are a part of something that is glorious. Do we see it? We are a part of something that is absolutely amazing. We belong in the kingdom of God. We are children of God. We are not merely servants, but the writer of Hebrews has expressed that God is not ashamed of us. That Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. That is crazy, mind-blowing where we sit in the house of God. He's made the point. Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is over the house. But the big point is you get to be in the house as a child of God. Have then a healthy fear and respect of God. Come to Him in thanksgiving for what we are enjoying. Verse 28, offer Him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. To always just be stunned. And in awe of this God. It's one of the big things that God always wanted throughout the Scriptures. Is He wanted a people that held Him in proper high regard. To see Him as glorious and holy. To understand He's not down here on this earth. He's not a mere idol that you can just mess around with. He is the holy God. Worship Him in the right way. Which I will allude to, that's what all of chapter 13 is about. We'll see that next. How do you worship this God, right? Chapter 13, everything in there. But we need to have a healthy fear of God because it is not without accident that this paragraph ends in verse 29 by saying our God is a consuming fire. He is not a warm, cuddly blanket of rainbows and unicorns. And He'll just take us however we are. It's okay. You just live how you want to live and you do you. And you just be the, the, the wonderful, unique person you are. And God will accept that. 
you've come not to Sinai, but to Zion. And with greater blessing and with greater joys and with greater amazing benefits that God has accomplished, there is a greater responsibility. To have a healthy fear of God, to have a faith that recognizes who he is, that we have come to something so special and that we would never devalue it. And then number three, this is what should make sin hit us hard. Sin needs to hit our hearts hard. It needs to hit our minds hard. It needs to jar us. Because when we continue in sin, we are making a trade. We are trading uh, the future inheritance for our own worldly desires. Please hear what the author of Hebrews is saying. Sin is not nothing. It's a trade. You are making a trade. You are saying to God, your inheritance and all that you have promised and all of the blessings are of no worth to me, no value whatsoever. And ultimately what sin does is sin reflects what we think about God's inheritance. Sin reflects what we think about that inheritance. We are telling God that my bitterness is worth it and I will hold on to my bitterness. My anger is worth it. My malice is worth it. My unholiness is worth it. My immorality is worth it. The sexual immorality that he brings up, that's worth it. What we are saying to God are those decisions are worth it. We need to understand that God is love, that God is gracious. This is a wonderful characteristic of God. But you cannot come to God and say, I'm making the trade and think it's going to be okay. It won't. We cannot willfully say, I'm going to make the exchange and do what I want to do and think that the future blessing and inheritance is still there. Our God is a consuming fire. He is a holy God. And we must then value Him above all else in this life. He must be our treasure He must be of everything to us because he is our savior. He is our rescuer. So lay aside every weight. Lay aside the sin that clings so close. Don't continue to make a trade so that you can't come back. You keep devaluing that future inheritance. You're never going to come back because you're going to look at it and go, it's nothing. There's no value there. All you're going to see is the value in the present life. And God's coming to us and saying, you're taking stew. I'm trying to give you wealth beyond imagination. I'm trying to give you an inheritance that you cannot begin to dream of. And you want stew? I'll let you have stew. But why would you want it? Don't make the trade. Let's pray to God.
Heavenly Father, oh, how easy it is to justify ourselves. It's just so easy for us to think that we can choose sin and it has no consequence. Lord, I pray today that we would just see the choice that we are making when we continue to sin. That we would see the high value of what you have offered us and the low value of these sins that we so often choose. I pray, Lord, that we would drill into our own hearts and consider, is there a root of bitterness that resides there? Are there roots of wickedness and holiness and immorality that we continue to allow to fester in our lives that would keep us from enjoying the future reward that you have promised to us? Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves, with what we are doing in our hearts and our lives. Help us to see if we have made this terrible trade. And Lord, when we do sin, may we please see the folly of our choice and that our hearts would be broken by our poor decision. That we would throw this stew aside and turn our hearts and our eyes back to you. Lord, thank you for being a forgiving God that receives us when we turn our hearts to you. We pray we would not be blinded by this world, that we would fail to see all that you have to offer and all that you are desiring to give us and all that we are unfortunately trading away when we choose to sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. We invite you to come to Him while there's opportunity before it's too late. Think about your condition before God. Think about the decision that you are making. Is sin really worth it? Are you going to trade away eternity and all that God has promised to let you enjoy for what you're doing right now? Is it really worth it? Don't make the exchange. Come to Jesus today. Believe in Him. Confess your sins to Him. Repent of those sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We encourage you to do it now while we stand.